welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC 286, headlined by a welterweight title fight. It's the third time these guys are meeting. We got Leon Edwards going up against Kamaru Usman, and in the co-main event, we have a lightweight banger on tap between Rafael Fiziev and Justin Gaethje. Just want to give a quick shout out to everybody that's been checking out the content as of late. I'm sure you guys are digging the nice and early releases. My deadline is always Monday noon Eastern. So keep your eyes peeled every Monday noon Eastern whenever there is a UFC event that weekend. Because the MMA Lawcast will be posted on YouTube and shortly thereafter on all podcasting platforms as well. You guys can count on it. All right, before we get into the actual breakdowns, I quickly want to go over last weekend as it was a pretty, well, I guess it's still that weekend as I'm recording this on Sunday, but a pretty eventful weekend where we had three regional events as well as the UFC card. We'll quickly go over the lock of the night prediction for the UFC card, which was Piotr Jan, and good God, did Marab Devalosvili probably have the greatest performance we've ever seen in a five-round MMA fight, especially with the UFC. 40-plus takedown attempts, endless cardio, and continue continuously keeping Piotr Jan on the back foot, I did not see that happening. I expected Marab to have early success in that fight with landing some takedowns and getting some offense off, but I really thought once Piotr Jan got a little bit more adjusted and more information and was able to download that information, he'd start to get his shots off and really start to stagger Marab Devalishvili from distance. Unfortunately, Marab did a great job of tackling that or uh, attacking that lead calf of Purion that rendered Purion pretty much defenseless because he had to go into his secondary stance and he just wasn't as comfortable throwing his offense from there which allowed that takedown attempts from Marab to continuously come time and time again great performance from Marab I did not see him beating him in that fashion he has all my respect the lock of the night ends up losing Luckily, thankfully, for everybody on the regional side of things, you hit three straight lock of the night plays on the three regional events prior to that event. As we had Enrique Barzola on the Bellator card, we had Roland Dunlap on the PFL card, and then we also had the under one and a half in the Hidolfo Bellato and Matthias Maceros fight on the LFA card. That brings our lock of the night prediction record for 2023 to 23 and three. So it's still pretty impressive, in my opinion. The dog of the night predictions all went to shit this past weekend the main one i'll quickly talk about is the anton turkali fight against vitor petrino i believe it ended up being a pick em come fight time but earlier in the week i was able to get plus 120 on him and i highly underestimated the cardio of petrino but not just the cardio but the ability to explode still later on in fights he did a great job of getting out of the positions i expected turkali to get him in in those late rounds but that was still not enough for Takali as Petrino got out of those positions, got to dominant positions, and was still able to rain down damage there. Great win for Petrino. Definitely gained some more respect for me. And Takali probably needs to work a little bit more on, one, his own cardio, and two, his strength to be able to keep opponents in those bad positions. This weekend, we still have two more regional events, not just UFC 286, but we have the final week of the Challenger Series for PFL, and not to mention Cage Warriors 150, which goes down as well this weekend. Both of those cards will be fully broken down on the Patreon, link in the description below. Not to mention, I'll be getting started on the UFC San Antonio card. All those breakdowns will initially drop on the Patreon starting on Wednesday. Keep your eyes peeled 
on the Patreon. Again, link in the description below. That is the best way to show your boys some support. Uh, and if you don't want to go that far, the least you can do, make sure you drop a like and subscribe on this video as well. Drop a comment as well. Let me know what you thought about Marab's performance as well as what you think about uh, this upcoming card as well. All right, that's enough for the intro here. Let's get right into this 15-card fight, which I believe kicks off nice and early as well. If I'm not mistaken, the main card kicks off 5 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we have 10 prelim fights, which makes me believe that it'll probably kick off somewhere between 1 p.m. and 2 p.m. Eastern. So going to be an early card, earlier than we're used to, especially for pay-per-view cards. Don't get caught napping, but we got a ton of fights to get through, so let's get right into it. Kicking things off in the women's flyweight division, we got Ultimate Fighter winner Juliana Miller coming in with a 3-1 record, going up against Veronica Hardy coming in with a 6-4-1 record. Starting off on the Juliana Miller side, she's only 3-1 in her professional MMA record, which does not include the two victories that she picked up on the Ultimate Fighter. She was able to showcase her grappling, and that is pretty much her calling card whenever she goes out there and competes, which leaves the rest of her game pretty much lacking. Her striking game leads a lot of work. It is very much technically deficient, and she leaves a lot of openings for opponents to uh, encounter and, and brutalize her on the feet, uh, especially if they have the confidence in terms of stuffing her takedowns and letting go with the hands. But Miller is relentless, and she's able to keep up a pace that many fighters are not able to stay with, which is why she's able to get a hold of them, push them up against the cage, drag them to the ground, where she's able to utilize her superior jiu-jitsu. She's very crushing from on top. And she does a lot of good work in terms of moving from position to position very well, doing some damage from on top, looking for submission opportunities or an opportunity to just posture up and rain down big blows. She's only 26 years old, so plenty of time for her to still round out the rest of her game. But I really think that she's going to get taken advantage of by fighters that can stop those takedowns, utilize their footwork and stay on the outside while pitter pattering her and taking advantage of her desperation takedown attempts. But at this point, if the UFC brings her along nice and slowly, she will be able to accrue some solid amount of experience before she has to face the upper echelon of the division where she'll start to run into trouble. Moving on over to the Veronica Hardy side, formerly Veronica Macedo. She's taken off a wealth amount or a lot of time off here in between fights where the last time she was competing was, I believe, the last event before COVID actually hit and the UFC shut down for a couple months. She competed against Bea Malecki that night and lost via decision and showcased why she should not be competing at that bantamweight division, which is what she did that night and what she ended up doing in her first first UFC fight as well against Ashley Evan Smith. We saw the just the strength and the size of both of those women tower over Veronica and Veronica started off both those fights pretty solidly with her footwork and her ability to strike from distance but it was ultimately the size and just the strength of her opponents that caused her to slow down and eventually let the fights slip through her fingers the later that they went but she showed off some decent work when she was competing at flyweight and she has some good striking some good footwork and uh, decent power in her hands but it's clear just looking at her losses and the way that she's been losing that if you can get her to the ground she may throw up a couple of submissions which she was able to catch Pollyanna Vienna in but if you're able to stay out of the submissions and do some good work from on top you should be able to 
pretty much dominator from that top position, drainer of her gas tank, and possibly finisher later on in her matchups. I'm curious to see what this relationship with Dan Hardy will do for her because for people in the prediction space or in that YouTube content space, you know, Dan Hardy is a very analytical dude who has his own successful YouTube channel where he breaks down fights and takes a serious analytical approach to all of his, all of his predictions. Gotta believe that's going to be rubbing off here on Veronica and I'm curious to see if she sees the holes in Juliana Miller's game and if she has the tools required to have uh, a good performance and stop whatever Miller is going to be doing. This is just an ugly fight all around and the fact that Juliana Miller is striking, not good. Veronica Macedo or Hardy's um, layoff gives you a lot of question marks right is she has she gotten better in that time off or has she gotten worse and if she's gotten better she should be able to stuff some of these telegraph takedowns that juliana miller throws and from there she might be be able to get off on the strikes maybe even catch miller in a submission if miller gets a little bit too lackadaisical on top um a lot of question marks i'm not comfortable with the heavy chalk on the miller side um and not to mention uh you know that the the big red flag of her potentially going through some sort of health event earlier on in her training camp who knows what kind of impact that will have on her in this specific matchup so what i'll be looking to target is actually the fight doesn't go to decision with miller likely getting her hand raised with that top control because everything that i see on tape right now still shows me that veronica just is no good off of her back unless she can throw up a hail mary submission but that is covered in the fight doesn't go to decision because if she is able to pull off a victory off of her back we can cash that fight doesn't go to decision but i think if veronica uh, cannot get up off of her back she will likely start to gas out and that will open up that finishing opportunity for juliana miller in the latter half of this matchup so prediction will be juliana miller but my favorite spot in this fight will be the fight doesn't go to decision Next up in the lightweight division, we got 12 and 4 Jai Herbert going up against 19 and 4 Ludovic Klein. Starting off on the Jai Herbert side, he's looking to get his first UFC winning streak put together here after he picked up a win last year over Kyle Nelson. That was a fight where he's dealt with some grappling issues early there, but did a very good job, defensively speaking, to keep that fight upright and then utilized his own grappling in the latter half of that fight to get his hand raised by decision. But we know what Jai Herbert is good at when he's on, and that's utilizing his distance striking combinations where he's able to pick opponents apart from distance. We saw him successfully do that against Francisco Trinaldo for all of two and a half rounds until Trinaldo uncorked a bomb, landed on Jai Herbert, and was able to win that fight by knockout. And that's where the big question mark with Jai comes into question, right? It's like, we know he's a good, talented striker and can usually stay safe from distance, but we've seen Trinaldo and obviously Taporia take advantage of his poor durability, and I'm wondering if he'll ever get to that point when he can, you know, completely tune his striking defense so that he can stay safe at distance while utilizing his strength, which is his distance striking. At 34 years old, time is kind of running out for him, so he really needs to put it together if he wants to have any success in the UFC, but he should be able to beat most opponents that he can establish that distance with and touch them up from from range and I, I love that about his game and I'm curious to see you know we we saw him use his grappling in his last matchup against Kyle Nelson we'll see if he continues to try to lean on that to try to eat up some clock and you know get some good control time and utilize more than just his striking to get his hand raised on the Ludovic Klein side he's coming off a two-fight winning streak now 
A lot of people counted him out against Devontae Smith and Mason Jones, especially in that latter fight where he was a massive plus 300 underdog. But he's bounced back from that two-fight losing skid that he had after his successful UFC debut, and he showcased that he is more than just a striker and doesn't mind implementing the grind if that's what it takes to get his hand raised. Most people just looked at him as a low-volume uh, striker with a nasty high kick, but he utilized some solid grappling and clinch work against Devontae Smith to win that fight by decision, and even hurt Mason Jones a couple times, eventually taking that fight into the grappling realm and grinding him out as well. But I think he's still kind of limited in his game, especially if opponents are able to get away from that grapple-heavy approach from him. Mason Jones, there were a couple times they even pulled guard in that fight, pretty much giving up the rest of that round, allowing Klein to grind him out from on top. So there are some question marks in terms of the legitimacy of some of the wins that Klein was able to get. And I'm curious to know how good his grappling actually is when he faces somebody that's going to give him some resistance in that realm. It's always scary picking a guy like Jai Herbert who you know can be flatlined, but you know that he's so good from that distance striking realm where if he can just stay at, stay safe at distance where he's going to be enjoying a height and reach advantage in this matchup, he should be able to pick apart Ludovic Klein, see those big shots incoming, get out of the way, maybe even change levels, duck under, get a takedown, save some time and get some control time from that top position, but do better work overall. Be the better minute winner here and take home a decision victory over Ludovic Klein. I get why he's the underdog there is that durability issue that we need to worry about but just as Jonathan Martinez did this past weekend if he can stay safe he can if he can stay safe uh, calm in bad positions he can put together a very good body of work to take home a decision victory say what you want about the Martinez decision but a lot of people thought that Saeed deserved to get his hand raised there but it was clear that Martinez was worth, was worth the underdog shot considering how close that fight ended up playing out. Same thing could happen here. If Herbert stays safe, if he stays conscious for 15 minutes, he could outpoint Ludovic Klein en route to a decision victory. Moving back to the women's flyweight division, we got Joanne Wood coming in with a 15-8 record. She goes up against 8-3 Loana Carolina. Starting off on the Joanne Wood side here, it has been a long time since she's managed to get her hand raised inside the octagon, and she still had a calder attached to her name at that point in time. She's 37 years old, riding a three-fight losing streak, but looking back at the losses that she's taken, you could cut her some slack. Other than maybe the Lauren Murphy fight in a very sketchy split decision that a lot of people believe that she deserved to get her hand raised. But her next two losses came via submission to a former title challenger who a lot of people thought actually deserved to get the decision against Valentina Shevchenko, Tyler Santos. And then the last fighter who actually defeated Valentina Shevchenko a couple weeks ago, Alexa Grasso. So, uh, you know, let's cut Joanne a little bit of slack considering the run that she's on. And the fact that the UFC has decided to keep her around on a three-fight losing streak and give her another shot makes me believe that they believe that she can go out there and still get her hand raised in a couple fights. She has good striking, and that's usually her MO when it comes to stepping inside the cage, where she throws a lot of combinations, good kicks, nice elbows as well when she sees the opening for them. And she does a great job in terms of moving in and out of range to establish that that striking control that she's usually able to garner. We've seen that her uh, normally her flaw in her game is her ground game, right? Jennifer Maya was obviously able to submit her with a uh, armbar, and I believe it was Joanne Wood who actually looked to take that fight to the ground. And I think after that fight, she probably learned her lesson that she should really make sure that she's the better jujitsu player if she looks to take fights to the ground. But 
She is a very solid striker, like I've said, and I think that if she can implement that game moving forward against other strikers, she usually gives herself a very good chance of pulling out the victory. Her opponent this weekend is also coming off a loss, but maybe not a three-fight losing streak. Lorana Carolina is coming off that devastating knockout loss to Molly McCann last year, where McCann landed that beautiful spinning elbow that put Luana Carolina completely out. It's good and comforting to know that Luana took off a lot of time to try to recover from that knockout so that she can come back with her facilities completely about her. She's a decent distance striker, but I don't really believe in her ability to be successful at the UFC level. Her wins against Priscilla Cachoeira and Poliana Battaglio have some question marks to them. And, you know, she can get the victory over uh, women like that. But the the Lupito Godinez win is the one that jumps out to a lot of people that make them believe that she could be a high-level competitor. However, let's not forget about the main circumstances going into that fight. Considering that Lupi took that fight on a week's notice, she had just won the previous week, and she was going up a division against a much taller and bigger woman, and she was unable to implement her game that night. Carolina utilized her size and her strength and her superior striking at that weight class to win that fight, but still, again, I wasn't completely impressed with her that night. She's a solid striker, like I said, with a developing ground game, but I think that if you can be the better technical striker than her, more than likely be, you'll be able to get your hand raised. I think Wood is singing her praises here that she's finally getting a winnable fight. Obviously, the Lauren Murphy was a winnable fight for her as well, but Tyler Santos and Alexa Grasso were just too good for her. But now she's getting a fighter in Luana Carolina that she can go out there and strike with and be the better technical striker and possibly get off on more output, which should allow her to put a good body of work together for the judges to hopefully score in her, her favor. I'm curious to see how Luana will look to adjust as she starts getting touched up and getting outvolumed. And even if she looks to take this fight to the ground, which is where Joanne, or Joanne Wood's uh, flaw seems to be or the weakness in her game seems to be, I just don't think she's good enough in that realm to take advantage of Wood. So I think Wood will shuck off the inevitable takedowns that are coming her way and she will get back to that game that just has made her so successful in the UFC, which is cardio, footwork, output and throwing in combinations and maybe even mixing a couple of those nasty elbows that she's known for as well so i'm going with joanne wood here to win this fight via decision shifting genders here but sticking with the flyweights we got nine and one jake hadley going up against 14 and six malcolm gordon Jake Hadley's looking to get another winning streak going this weekend after successfully rebounding from his first ever professional loss by submitting Carlos Candelario the last time he stepped in the cage. Jake Hadley showcased a very crisp striking and boxing approach in the first round of that fight, which actually caused Carlos Candelario to go for a takedown in that second round, and Jake was quick to slap on that submission and was able to choke out the usually solid submission defense specialist Carlos Candelario. He's gone out there and dealt with a lot of other submission specialists and came out unscathed, but Jake Hadley was so quick to the trigger in terms of slapping on that triangle choke that it was just a matter of time before Candelario was forced to submit. And that is Jake Hadley's calling card normally. He likes to go out there and he likes to take opponents to the ground, smash them on top with some solid pressure and either open up a TKO opportunity for himself or a submission opportunity for himself like he did on the Contender Series to uh, notch his UFC contract when he submitted Mitch Raposo. Jake still has a ton of potential in my 
eyes. And even though he dropped that decision to Alana Cemento, I think it was a wake-up call for Jake to showcase that, yes, his BJJ is great, but guys are going to be technically better than him in that realm and that he has to really shape out the rest of his game if he's going to be successful at this at this level. And I think he showcased that in the Candelario fight by showcasing his very good striking and boxing combinations. And I think if he leans on that, that'll allow op- other opportunities in the grappling realm to showcase themselves, where which will allow him to take it to the ground and be more dominant from that position. I have high hopes for the kid still, and I completely understand why he finds himself at a chalky line once again this weekend. He's going up against Malcolm Gordon, who is a fellow Canadian of mine, and I wish I could cheer for him a little bit more, but I know that there is a hard ceiling on what his potential could actually be. At 32 years old, he did manage to pull together two straight victories at the UFC level, but ended up going to a, uh, or almost going to a decision against Mohamed Mokayev, but hats off to him for showcasing a lot better of an opposition than many people expected him to when he stepped into the cage that night. He was a massive underdog that night and had some success or at least more success than people expected him to, but it was still Mokayev that was able to latch on to an armbar late in that fight to get the submission victory. Gordon is a BJJ black belt and that's where he prefers to take fights as he showcased in the Figueredo fight and even in the Dennis Bondaire fight which ended via you know some unfortunate circumstances with Bondaire injuring I believe it was his shoulder or his arm uh, but Gordon was still able to pick up the victory that night. But Gordon is very desperate to get fights to the ground which could end up being some issues for him especially when he fights higher levels of competition. He leaves himself exposed when he crashes the pocket, especially with how reckless he does, because it doesn't seem like he's very comfortable in his striking. He, you know, a couple years ago, uh, employed the services of Bazooka Joe uh, Valtellini, who is a very high-level glory kickboxing champion from the uh, Southern Ontario region. Unfortunately, it just doesn't seem like Gordon is comfortable enough implementing what he was able to learn from Bazooka Joe, and which is usually causing him to just crash the pocket recklessly and look for takedowns. I don't think that's going to work out for him, especially as he continues to take steps up in competition in this flyweight division, which has a lot of great submission artists, a lot of great grapplers, and a lot of guys that are going to use that against him. I think this is a great fight for Jake Hadley to get that winning streak going again and continue to build upon the confidence that he had when he first came into the UFC. Malcolm Gordon is a solid BJJ black belt, but I definitely know that or Hadley is much better on top. Uh, he's stronger on top. He'll be able to pretty much dictate where this fight goes in terms of the grappling realm. And then even in the striking realm, I think if Jake wants to just keep this fight standing, he's the much better striker here, and he should be able to get off on great damage against Malcolm Gordon, which will either end up with a knockout victory or a club and sub opportunity for Hadley as well. Malcolm Gordon is no Alain Nascimento with how disciplined and technical he is with his jiu-jitsu, and I think that won't cause any troubles for Jake Hadley in the spot. Look for Jake Hadley, solid parlay piece in my opinion, and also for him to win inside the distance. If you can get a good enough number, I think that's a good spot to take a shot on as well. Jake Hadley, by whatever way he wants, I'm going to call it via club and sub. Moving up to the middleweight division, we got the UFC debut of Cage Warriors middleweight champion Christian Leroy Duncan. He takes on Dusko Todorovic, who's coming in with the 12-3 record. Starting off on the Christian Leroy Duncan side, he comes in with a squeaky clean 7-0 professional record with six of those wins coming inside the distance. 
he's a very solid striker who you do not want to allow to get comfortable at distance because he moves in and out of range very well, utilizing a kick-heavy game, but has some nasty power in his hands as well. He's delivered on a plethora of highlight reel finishes, which includes some flying knees and even some spinning elbows, and that's something that a lot of opponents are going to have to be wary of if they're trying to look to close a distance against Christian. Christian, you got to believe that his weakest part of his game is going to be his grappling, but I've been very impressed with what I've been seeing from him defensively speaking. Opponents have been able to secure takedowns against him, but they're unable to secure dominant positions because he does a great job of spinning out of bad positions, looking for opportunities to just stall and wait for his opportunity to eventually you know, explode out of bad positions or look for those technical uh, technical signs that he can just find to, to reverse the position or eventually get back to his feet. And he's not too bad from on top either where he's able to flow from position to position very well. But it's obvious that he prefers to keep fights in the standing room where he can showcase his speed and, and explosiveness to notch some knockout victories. I've seen him lose a couple rounds, mainly the first round of his fights, but he does a very good job in terms of utilizing minimal energy so that he can explode in the second round when his opponent is trying to feel the wear and tear of trying to uh, establish their dominance on uh, Christian when they're trying to get that top position or try to get into the ground in that first round. I love his ability to conserve his energy so that he can utilize it more effectively in the second and third rounds, especially when his opponents really start feeling the wear and tear of trying to establish their dominant positions. Moving on to Dusko Todorovic, who's coming off a knockout victory over Jordan Wright last time around. That was a fight where we saw Jordan actually have some grappling success against Dusko. But luckily for Dusko, Jordan was the one who emptied his gas tank a little bit too early. And Dusko was able to push it in that second round, eventually getting that dominant position and getting that ground and pound finish. But... We've even seen from fights in Dushko where he tries to do what opponents do to Christian by looking to get fights to the ground. And if he's not able to uh, establish uh, a dominant position or get a finish of his own, he ends up slowing down later in fights and opponents are able to take advantage of him and knock him out, similar to what Chidi and Jakowani was able to do. But... You know, Dushko definitely not achieving the potential that he seemed to have coming into the UFC, and he's looking to utilize more of a grapple-heavy approach rather than the karate style where he darts in and out of range and utilizing his big uh, punching power and even his kicks as well. It's safe to say he's likely not going to achieve the potential that people expected of him before he made his UFC debut. Like I said, I am very excited for Christian Leroy Duncan's UFC debut here. And with that squeaky clean 7-0 record, I think we see it get pushed to 8-0. I think we're going to see a grapple-heavy approach from Dusko Todorovic early in this fight. I think he will fail to get those dominant positions required to get the finish that he needs to win this fight. And that's going to cause him to slow down, allowing Christian to start to pull away in the second and possibly even get a finish in that third round. I think he's just way too... Uh, unorthodox in the striking round for, for Todorovic to get a beat on and not to mention I think the speed advantage that Christian is going to enjoy in this fight will allow him to get to his target a little bit quicker here and that should end up in a knockout victory for him as well again this is going to be the toughest test for Christian in his seven fight or eight fight professional career to this point but I just don't think that Todorovic is that great of a grappler that he's going to be able to exploit the shortcomings in Christian Leroy Duncan's game so look for Christian to you know have to battle through some adversity early on here but he should start to pull away in the second and possibly get that third round finish here I'm going to go Christian Leroy Duncan via knockout
moving over to the featherweight division, we got the return of 11-0-1 Lerone Murphy as he takes on short notice newcomer and current LFA featherweight champion 10-0 Gabriel Santos. Starting off on the Lerone Murphy side, he's coming off of a beautiful knockout victory over Makwana Mirakani, which was set up by a beautiful flying knee. He got dominated in that first round with a grapple-heavy approach from Amir Khani, but Lerone, which clearly the grappling is the one flaw in his game, showcased good defensive skills that night as he was able to stay away from bad positions, eventually work back to his feet, get the rest of the round off, and then in that second round, clearly saw the big bites that Amir Khani was showing anytime Lerone fainted, and then he was able to feint him into that flying knee and get that knockout victory. Lerone at his best, utilizes his explosiveness and big power to touch his opponents up from distance, looking for that big shot that he can put them away with. He has good ground and pound as well when he's able to get his opponents on the mat, and he has a great calf kick that he implements to slow down his opponents so that he can use his speed even more effectively. That's what he relies on most, is his distance and his speed to close that gap, to close that distance with that big power and inflict massive damage on his opponents. His opponent this week in Gabriel Santos, like I said, is the former LFA featherweight champion and he actually won that title back in January about six or seven weeks ago after he finished his opponent Jose Delano in the third round of their title fight. That was actually the finale of a featherweight tournament that the LFA put together to crown a new welterweight champion, but it looks like they're going to have to find a new welterweight champion now that Santos has taken this opportunity to step in on short notice. He's a very fun fighter to watch with a very, I don't want to call it wild striking style, but he, he puts the pressure on his opponents, moves forward with big shots, and he leaves a lot of openings to be countered. Unfortunately for Delano, he was unable to counter against Santos and it seemed like he got drowned by the pressure that Santos continuously put on him. Santos is a BJJ brown belt and he looks to get fights to the ground as often as he can, but his wrestling still needs a lot of work. When he's the one on his back, he's very good with throwing up submissions and causing some issues to his opponents, which either get, allows him to get the submission or allows him to get a reversal to either get back to his feet or do some damage of his own from on top. I loved the enthusiasm and energy that he brought into his title fight and that just constant pressure that he was putting on his opponent. But at this level, he has to be very careful in terms of how he implements that pressure and how he does it with his striking defense. This should be a great fight for as long as it lasts, which is why I think fight doesn't go to decision will probably be the best way to go in this fight. But I think it's going to be that speed and an explosiveness of Lerone Murphy that will allow him to take advantage of the striking defense deficiencies in Gabriel Santos's game. That's going to open up plenty of opportunities for Lerone to explode it through the pocket, crash that pocket, get some big punches off and get that knockout. I also wouldn't be surprised if we see Lerone try to work that lead leg of Gabriel first to try to slow him down and try to get him to stop pressuring him because I fully expect Santos to come in the way that he did against Delano. But I just think the short notice nature of this fight, the fact that he has to travel so far to get it to, to, to London for this fight. He took the fight on about 10 days notice, maybe 14 by the time the fight actually takes place. 
those are all going to be working against him, especially against a very hot prospect in Lerone Murphy. The uh, head injury that Lerone Murphy is coming off of, the layoff that he's coming off of, gives me a little bit of hesitancy. However, I think he is a very solid prospect, and he's going to come back emphatically here, and I think it comes off a knockout victory. So fight doesn't go to decision, my favorite spot on this fight, but in terms of a specific prediction, I'm going to go Lerone Murphy by knockout. Heading back down to the flyweight division, we have the phenom Mohamed Mokhaev coming in with an 8-0 record. He goes up against UFC debutante 14-2 Filio. Mohamed Mokhaev is coming off a submission victory over Malcolm Gordon back uh, a couple months ago, actually. I believe it was in July, which was the last time the UFC was in London, where you know he faced a little bit more adversity than people were expecting. But he still managed to dominate the majority of that fight and eventually latching on to an armbar victory that he was able to get in the dying seconds of that fight. But Mokhaev has looked pretty damn good through his three, three UFC fights, usually looking like the heavy chalk that his uh, fights normally showcase him at. He's a very relentless grappler with very solid striking, although a little bit too flashy and cocky at times. That's definitely going to get him caught against better opponents. I would hope that he tries to hone that in a little bit more. But with the grappling chops that he has, the cardio that he has, he'll make it to the top 15, maybe even the top 10 of this flyweight division. He's going to be taking steady steps up in competition. And I love the way the UFC is bringing him along. But at 22 years old, there's only a, you know, a limitless ceiling for this kid to continue to grow, especially with the basics that he currently has covered. His opponent this weekend, Jafel Filio, earned his contract to the UFC with a knockout victory over Echeverria a couple months back, and now he's making a very tough debut against the phenom, Mohamed Makayev. Jafel Filio trains out of Novo Uniao, which was made famous by Jose Aldo, and Filio shows a very solid all-around game. Not to mention 16 fights of MMA experience is going to be very important for him in this fight against the 8-0 prospect that he's facing. Filio is a BJJ black belt and shows a very solid striking game, but it seems he prefers to get his opponents to the ground to have his most success. You wouldn't be able to tell that based on the way he was able to dispose of Echeverria to notch his contract to the UFC, but trust me, he will prefer to get fights to the ground where he can showcase his BJJ black belt and try to pull off a submission victory. This will be a very stiff test for Mohamed Mukhaev, and I think it's something that people need to be concerned about. You know, minus 800, I have no uh, interest in terms of just throwing him into a parlay because of that. Like, uh, Jafel is very experienced, has 16 fights of, uh, you know, professional fights under his belt at this point in time, against legitimate competition as well. He's a very solid all-around fighter, and he might be the technically better striker here. So he might be able to take advantage of some of the flashy techniques that Mukhaev may look to show off here. But if Mokhaev is means business here, if Mokhaev takes this fight as seriously as he should, he should be able to drag this fight to the ground and sh he should be able to have his way with the BJJ black belt. Filio might have some success in certain spots, but I love the scramble ability of Mokhaev. I love the cardio that he has and just the control that he's able to maintain in those grappling sequences. I think is going to be too much for Filio to keep up with. So I'm going to go Mokhaev here. I think he wins this fight by decision as well. So maybe looking at that prop will probably be the best way to extract as much value as, I, as you can from this matchup. But I think Mokhaev remains undefeated and I think he gets his hand raised here by decision. 
Moving up to the lightweight division, we got 10-1-1, Sam Patterson making his UFC debut, going up against another UFC debut taunt, the 6-0 Yanel Ashmos. Patterson brings in a very lanky 6'3 frame to this lightweight division, especially with a 78-inch reach. He does a decent job of picking his opponents apart from distance and that usually causes them to shoot desperation takedowns where he has a very nasty guillotine choke that he's able to apply on a lot of opponents. He does a great job of just picking them apart and just waiting for that eventual shot that's coming and he latches onto their neck almost immediately. Some are able to spin out, others unfortunately are forced to tap out. I'm not a big fan of his tall man defense which could potentially get him caught against better strikers who can close that distance and are okay with being hit while crashing the pocket but eventually somebody's going to catch that chin of Sam Patterson and he's going to have to do a better job of trying to tuck that chin in and get away from those big shots that are going to be coming his way. But at this point, and then only at 26 years old, you got to believe that he has a ton of potential with the frame that he brings to this division, but also with the technical expertise that he strikes with, utilizing that range, picking his opponents apart, utilizing that one-two down the middle, and a good kicking game as well. But I just the best part of his game, in my opinion, is that choke game, and he's so relentless with it as well, and does such a good job of just bringing that bad takedown attempt out of his opponents so that he can get that choke. On the flip side for Yanel Ashmos, he actually got a shot on the Challenger Series for PFL last year and he had a pretty dominant fight but it was not enough for him to secure a PFL contract and now he finds himself exactly a year later making his UFC debut. So even though he didn't get the contract that night, I'm sure he's happy that he's getting this opportunity to fight for the UFC. He's an Israeli fighter with a 6-0 record and he actually took off close to four years between 2017 and 2021 and you saw a much better version of him when he came back. It looked like he moved overseas and set up shop in New Jersey where we see him utilizing more so of a grapple-heavy approach compared to the big bombs that he was winging in his earlier parts of his career. He still throws with a lot of heat in his hands and is usually a little bit wild and reckless when he crashes the pocket with those shots, but it's either to knock you out, knock you down, or close that distance so he can get in on a takedown and drag you to the ground and do some punishment from on top. I think at 6-0, and he's just a little bit too green to be competing at this high of a level, especially with some of the refining that his game still needs to do before he can be successful at this level. But one thing's for sure, he's a very entertaining fighter and will always bring the heat to his opponents. It's going to be curious. I'm curious to see whether he can get those first couple of victories in the UFC with his style or if it's going to work against him. This should be a fun fight for as long as it lasts. I'm a big fan of this fight in terms of, you know, these guys aren't very well known, especially with both of them making their UFC debut here. Kind of surprised they're not opening up the card, but I think this is strategic from the UFC to put an action-packed fight like this in the middle of the card, especially a 15-fight card. I expect Sam Patterson to fully utilize his range here, try to keep Ashmos on the outside with his one-twos down the middle, with his kicking game, and I think eventually he's going to hurt you know, and that will force a bad shot of you know, which will allow Patterson to lock up that neck and take home a submission victory. He now will be dangerous and he is going to be capable of closing that distance with his overhands to potentially uh, take advantage of that tall man defense of Patterson, which is why I like the fight doesn't go to decision most in this matchup rather than the chalk on Patterson. 
But I still believe that at a certain point, Yanel is going to get a little bit too desperate with that takedown attempt, which is inevitably coming here because I just don't think he'll be comfortable trying to, you know, just stay at distance and allow Patterson to do his work from distance. He's going to have to eventually crash that pocket. And at a certain point, I think he's going to get his neck snatched up here. And I think Sam Patterson takes home a decision victory or a, sorry, a submission victory. But I like the fight doesn't go to decision the most in this matchup. Let's stick with the lightweights here where we're going to be talking about 9-1 Chris Duncan going up against 11-3 Omar Morales. Starting off on the Chris Duncan side, he successfully got his UFC contract after his second attempt on the contender series, but it didn't come without it some adversity. Charlie Campbell was able to hurt Chris Duncan on numerous occasions in the early goings of that fight, but... Charlie got a little bit too overzealous and Chris was able to take advantage by countering him effectively and putting his lights out gold. And that's Chris Duncan's style. The man is a brawler. He loves to go out there and swing leather. We saw after his loss to Borshev on his first attempt in the contender series where he went onto the regional scene and went to a decision against an opponent that was 7-4 or 6-4 at the time if I'm not mistaken. But we saw a full MMA game from Chris that night where he utilized his striking to set up takedown opportunities but he just didn't seem the most comfortable from that top position so he wasn't able to get a vast amount of control time from on top. It's clear he wants to use his boxing and often sometimes his kicks to try to close that distance and get off on his big shots when he's able to enter the pocket but he still leaves himself to be open to be countered and that could be pretty bad for him when he goes up against better technical strikers than him especially at the UFC level moving over to Omar Morales who's on a two-fight losing streak the first ever losing streak of his career and it's coming against guys like Jonathan Pierce and Uro Schmedich the latter half of that two-fight losing streak is the one that kind of has me raising my eyebrows to the 37-year-old Colombian. I really believe that Omar Morales would be able to survive the early onslaught from Oro Medic and then put him away in the second round. And he did the first part of that, just couldn't do the second part as Medic really started to put the pressure on him and was able to land that big shot and drop Morales. I think it was the 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 size of Medic that was kind of giving Morales problems that night as Medic, or Morales is normally the one that was... Uh, you know, utilizing his range and his distance management to implement his striking heavy approach to try to keep opponents at bay. That's what he did against Gabriel Benitez and Shane Young, where he just kicked them to oblivion, but also used a good uh, boxing combination to keep them at distance. He was unable to keep up with the kicking game of Giga Chikaze, nor was he able to keep up with the grapple-heavy approach from Jonathan Pierce, but it seemed really to me like the range of Earl Schmedich caught up to Morales that night. Even though he's 37 years old, I think he still has some good wins left in him, especially at the UFC level, especially with the discipline and technique that he brings to the table. And if he can keep that up, if he can maintain his striking defense and his distance management, he should still be able to pull off a couple victories. This is going to be a big telltale fight for Omar Morales, especially at 37 years old. If he can't go out there and defeat a guy like Chris Duncan, he's one, either going to get cut, or two, he likely just hangs up the gloves and just calls it a career. I think he is the more disciplined striker here, which is going to be the main X factor. I think Chris Duncan is going to be a little bit too reckless and a little bit too wide for the strikes that he's going to be throwing when he crashes the pocket, which will allow Omar Morales to utilize his speed and his technical advantages here to get to the target a little bit quicker. Look for Morales to utilize a lot of kicks from distance, and that will frustrate Duncan, which will allow that countering opportunity for Morales to reign supreme in this matchup. I think Morales 
will likely try to stay safe as safe as possible at distance here and just pick away at him just as he did to Gabriel Benitez and Shane Young which will likely allow him to get this decision victory but if Chris Duncan just says fuck it and tries to throw caution to the wind that could be a very bad move for him and allow Morales to pick up another knockout victory on his record but in terms of an official prediction I'm going to go Omar Morales and Omar Morales by decision. That brings us to our prelim headliner, which takes place in the featherweight division between 16-1 Jack Shore, who goes up against 17-8 Makwan Amir Khani. Jack Shore is coming off his first ever loss in his 17-fight career, where he ended up getting club and subbed by Ricky Simone. That was a fight where Jack Shore showed off some really good work in that early in the early goings of that fight. And the live odds even had him as a bigger favorite going into that second round. But eventually, Ricky Simone was able to land a big shot that dropped Jack Shore. And that set up the arm triangle choke for Jack Shore to eventually get his hand raised by submission. But Jack Shore, one of my favorite fighters and still has a ton of potential. And I think that this loss will definitely help in the growth in the rest of his game. He's a cardio machine that puts on a grapple-heavy approach on a lot of his opponents that are unable to keep up with him. He usually breaks guys and, and is able to finish them late in their fights, especially if he has a huge cardio advantage over them. His striking is coming together, and I believe that this loss to Ricky Simone will further improve his striking game as he's going to be a little bit more cognizant from the defensive side of things. But if he keeps up his pace and the pressure that he normally brings to the cage, he's still going to be very successful at this level. Moving on over to his opponent this weekend, the Finnish fighter Makwan Amirkani, looking to avoid another losing streak this weekend. He's going to be bringing in another grapple-heavy approach, and we know that he loves that front choke Anaconda Dar series that he likes to slap on his opponents. We saw guys like Kamala Kirk and Jonathan Pierce showcase a very good choke defense, and I believe they drilled that defense over and over again throughout their camp, knowing if they can defend against that, that they can come out on the other end with a victory. Jonathan Pierce was able to survive that onslaught from Mark 1 and finish him in the latter half of that fight, while Kamala Kirk put together a very solid performance over 15 minutes, stayed away from that choke threat, and eventually got the decision victory. But we know that's Mach 1's game, right? If he's not able to get that win within that first round to maybe even round and a half, he's more than likely going to slow down from that just high gear that he goes at at the beginning of fights. He's going to slow down and fighters are more than likely going to be able to take advantage of that and pull away later in fights, whether it's finishing him or just winning the latter half of that fight to take home a decision victory. I'm fully expecting a highly motivated and hungry Jack Shore to rebound after his first ever professional MMA loss. I think that this is a great matchup for him to go out there and put the pace and pressure on Makwan Americani. Makwan will likely land a couple of takedowns early in this matchup, but Jack Shore is so good defensively in the grappling room that he's going to make Makwan work for every single position, which will benefit Jack Shore the, far, the deeper that this fight goes. I'm fully expecting it to go into the second round, and I think from there we're going to see that momentum swing, and we're going to see Jack Shore really start to add up the numbers here with his volume, maybe even land some takedowns of his own and do some dominant work from on top, which will allow him to either get that second or third round victory in this matchup. I'd be surprised if Jack Shore gets locked up in a submission, unless it comes from a club and sub situation like it did in the Ricky Simone fight. I'd be surprised if, uh, you know, Makwan latches onto an Anaconda choke from a desperation takedown from Jack Shore. Jack Shore doesn't do de desperation takedowns. He sets up his takedowns very well with his hands behind those combinations. And I think it's just going to be a matter of time before Makwan realizes, 
I'm fucked. And Jack Shore will be able to take advantage of that. And I think he takes home either a second or a third round. I don't know if it's going to be submission or a TKO. Either or is possible. Jack Shore inside the distance. I'm going to take some of that third round prop as well because I'm fully expecting it to be a decent number here. But I like Jack Shore the most. There's a reason he's at a fully chalk number here. And I think he's worth every bit of juice in the spot. Give me Jack Shore by dominant inside the decision or inside the distance victory here. Kicking off the main card here, we got middleweights going at it as 18-5-1 Marvin Vittori takes on 12-1 Roman Delizze. Starting off on the Marvin Vittori side, he's coming off of a loss back in September against Robert Whitaker, where the speed, explosiveness, and striking of Whitaker was too much for Vittori to keep up with. Vittori is a solid grappler who utilizes his strength and his clinch work to keep opponents static and eventually drag them to the mat where he's able to have good success from on top. He's very strong in those positions and even though he doesn't come from a traditional wrestling background, he's very much implemented it well into his game as he's able to keep opponents in uh, bad positions and just rain down some good shots, usually not finishing them but doing enough to get get home with a decision victory. He's been spending time at Tiger Muay Thai over the last couple months, and I believe that's going to be a good thing for him to develop his striking game, which is probably the weakest part of his game as well. I might have been over-exaggerating a bit in terms of how much time he spent at Tiger Muay Thai because he's been spending time at Extreme Couture as well, which is good to see from a veteran like Marvin Vittori because even at 29 years old, and even though he's failed in a title shot that he received a couple of months or a couple of years back now, I should say, I still believe that if he can put together a couple good wins and continue to improve his game in that time, he will eventually earn another title shot and could be live to actually capture it this time around. And he's only 29. His opponent this weekend, Roman Delize, has a four-fight winning streak going on, and a lot of people are surprised that he's been able to make it this far in his UFC career. After losing to Trevin Giles five fights back, he's defeated Laureano Storopoli, Cal Dacus, Phil Haas, and Jack Hermanson. The last three of those he was able to finish by knockout. He traditionally likes that grappling and he likes to utilize his jujitsu where he's able to you know, go for leg locks. And even though it hasn't been successful at the UFC level, it's cool to see his aggressiveness to try to assert himself in fights and try to get his hand raised. His striking is still needs a lot of work, technically speaking, but given his aggressiveness and a willingness to move forward and get off uh, on his opponents, that usually allows knockouts to transpire like it did against Phil Hawes and Kyle Dacus. It's very weird that calf slicer position he was able to get against Jack Hermanson that rendered Jack Hermanson, def- Hermanson defenseless, which is when Demolize was able to get off on a bunch of big shots that forced the referee to step in that night. I still think that there is a hard cap on Delize's potential. And I just think that he, once he goes up against fighters that are able to put him into uncomfortable positions, that he's going to struggle to get out of the, those bad spots. Yes, great for him that he's on a four-fight winning streak, but I just don't know how much further he's going to be able to get as he continues to face the top of this middleweight division. This could be a dangerous fight for Marvin Vittori if he's not careful. Because as we've seen in past Roman Delize fights, if he lets go with some of his big power, he can truly hurt his opponents and get them out of there. But I think that Vittori's durability has shown off time and time again that he can take some big shots and continue on through it and get back to his game, which is a lot of roughing his opponents up in the clinch and on the ground. And I think that's going to be open for him here. As long as he stays safe and he just finds his way into the pocket or even counters a lot of those reckless crashing of the 
pockets that Delizze likes to do. Just wrap him up, push him up against the cage, and just get to what Vittori does. Minus 300, for some reason, makes me a little bit queasy, but knowing the skill gap between these guys, I really believe that Vittori should have little to no issue in this matchup. I think he wins this fight. I think he wins it dominantly as well. It might be sticky in the early goings here, but I think as this fight starts to go deeper, the finishing threat of Roman will start to go down, which will allow Vittori to get the positions that he needs to, to get that control, to get off some damage as well, and to take home a decision victory. Moving back to the women's flyweight division, we got 29-1 and Jennifer Maya going up against 9-0 and King Casey O'Neill. Starting off on the Jennifer Maya side, she's coming off a upset victory over Marina Moreau's last time around. And it's kind of surprising that she was the underdog going into that fight, knowing how much experience and probably being the better overall fighter that night. I think a lot of people expect Moreau's to put on a grapple-heavy approach, but she was unable to even attempt a single takedown as Maya did a great job of going in and out of range and letting off on output and volume that Marina was unable to keep up with. And that's what Jennifer Maya brings to the table. Even though she's a BJJ black belt, she seldomly looks to take fights to the mat where she would likely have an advantage over some of her opponents because she chooses to strike and utilizes her Muay Thai, which she's so comfortable uh, implementing. She throws in good combinations and lands great kicks as well, but she will come up short against the Shevchenkos of the world and the Trukagians of the world who are able to put on good output and volume against her as well. We saw her come up short against Mano Firo as well, who Firo, very tough to deal with with her in and out movement and her speed, agility, and power that she throws with, so we can't really fault Jennifer Maya too much for coming up short in that matchup. I'd be interested to see if she looks to take more grapple-heavy approaches to try to get her hand raised, but if she continues to get wins strictly off of striking, you can't blame her for continuing to stick with it. Casey O'Neill is coming back from a devastating knee injury where she shredded pretty much every ligament in her knee, and now she's coming back after defeating and putting Roxanne Modafferi into retirement back in, Jan- I believe, February of last year. Casey O'Neill is still a somewhat raw talent at 9-0, and she's getting high-level training at Extreme Couture, but we still see some defensive flaws in her game. But with her strength and her aggressiveness, she's still been able to keep a squeaky clean record by defeating whatever the UFC has thrown at her at this point. We've seen some opponents have some grappling success against her, but she's done a great job of getting out of those bad positions and then getting back into range or even implementing her own grapple-heavy approach where she's able to do significant damage from on top. I'm still questioning how healthy she'll she'll be coming back from such a devastating knee injury, but given that she's still only 25 years old, you gotta believe that she'll come back, you know, a better version of herself or possibly as close to a better version of herself that we've expected in the past i think she still has some good potential and a lot of people are going to be looking to fade her i will say this though i'll be conservative in terms of betting her at chalk if that's what the the odds makers continue to give us but this weekend will be a great test to see what her skill level is actually at I feel like Jennifer Maya could be a very live dog in the spot, which is why I want nothing to do in this matchup. Like from a money line perspective, I understand taking the Jennifer Maya shot, but I just feel that aggressiveness and that strength that Casey O'Neill shows and that never real settling attitude will get her out of bad positions. And just that footwork and that movement from that outside and that distance that she's going to be able to cover will allow her to get off some good shots against Jennifer Maya. And even those uh, moments where Jennifer likes to crash the pocket with the combinations, I think that's going to be opportune moments for 
Casey to change levels, get that takedown, and utilize her strength. I get that Jennifer Maya is a BJJ black belt, but I think strength in women's MMA is a huge deciding factor in terms of who ends up getting their hand raised. And I think that O'Neill will, you know, obviously she's very hungry to come back from that devastating ACL injury that she had early last year. And I think that's going to motivate her to come out here and have a great performance against Maya. Maya's going to be very difficult to put away. So I think that we're going to see O'Neill just grind this find out from that top position. She's going to have to be very safe when she's in the full guard of Maya as we saw Maya get that armbar victory over um, Joanne Wood a couple years back. But I think that O'Neill, she still makes some mistakes. She's still very early in her career, especially with the level of uh, experience and the amount of experience that Jennifer Maya has as an advantage over Casey O'Neill in this matchup. I don't hate people taking a shot on Jennifer here, but I think that those physical capabilities that Casey brings to this fight will be the deciding factor in this matchup. Very little confidence in, I have no interest in putting money on Casey O'Neill as a, you know, a moderate favorite in this matchup. I would look more so if she ever becomes an underdog, which I highly you know, doubt is going to happen, especially considering the amount of hype that Casey O'Neill usually gets from the betters. She should win this fight, but this is a huge test for her. Absolutely a huge test where you shouldn't be backing her as a favorite, but I'm still going to predict her to win this fight, and I think she does it via decision. We got welterweight veterans going at it here as we have 18-5-1 Gunnar Nelson going up against 18-9 Brian Barbarena. Starting off on the Gunnar Nelson side, it was great to see him come back victorious last time around where he was able to win via decision against Takashi Sato. Many people expected him to get the submission victory that night over Sato, and even though he enjoyed a wealth of, of time uh, in control, uh, especially from that back, he was unable to get that submission victory. You got to believe that Sato was drilling submission defense that entire training camp, especially considering that everybody expected him to get submitted that night. Gunnar Nelson usually has a karate type stance when he's in the striking realm, but he is very comfortable when he's able to get fights to the ground, which is where he's able to get his hand raised. But you see a clear divide between the fighters that he's been able to defeat since being in the UFC and the fighters that he's been able to uh, or that he lost against. You know, the even just over his last five fights, you're talking about uh, beating guys like Cowboy Oliveira and Takashi Sato, who both aren't in the UFC anymore. And I believe every fighter that Gunnar Nelson has defeated is no longer in the UFC. Actually, you know what? Sato might still be in the UFC, but he's on a three-fight losing streak, which usually is grounds for getting cut from the UFC. And then the guys that he's lost to just in his last... or. Yeah, just in his last three fights, Santiano, Santiago Ponzinibbio, Leon Edwards, and Gilbert Burns. There's a clear divide in terms of the, of the level of competition that he's getting past and not getting past. And that's a far cry from what I expected when he first made his UFC debut back in 2014. I remember hearing about him for so long about how high level his jiu-jitsu was. He was coming in with an undefeated record and he had a very good start to his UFC career. Until he ran into Rick Story. And then it was just a pure roller coaster for the rest of his UFC career. So at 34 years old, I'm not expecting Gunnar Nelson to go on any type of title run or you know contendership even. But he should still be able to squeak out some victories here against the middle of the welterweight division. And I think that's what he's getting here against the guy in Brian Barbarena who came up short against Rafael Dos Anjos the last time we saw him in action back in December. He was on a three-fight winning streak going into that matchup, defeating guys like Darian Weeks, Matt Brown, and Robbie Lawler in a complete slugfest where he was able to showcase his punching power, his durability, and his willingness to just go in there and engage in wars and still come out with, with his hand raised. 
But when he's facing technically better fighters than him, fighters that are not so far past their prime or going into their 40s, usually he ends up coming up short. He's a very solid fighter and, and, you know, just above average fighter in the UFC's welterweight division. But he'll clearly showcase to the UFC the guys you can keep around and the guys that likely you should end up letting go. I'm still very hot and cold about Gunnar Nelson, specifically his wrestling game. And I don't know if he's going to fully be able to implement it here against Brian Barbarino. I think that if he mixes in his striking and then eventually times a perfect uh, takedown, he'll probably get it then. And I think he has good enough striking to hang with Barbarina on the feet and obviously be successful against Barbarina on the feet. But I think ultimately he's going to need to drag this fight to the ground where he's going to be able to do his best work. I wouldn't take the fact that he couldn't submit Takashi Sato to heart to the extent that he won't be able to submit Brian Barbarina because I think he's still capable of doing that. So if you get a good enough plus number on that submission prop, I think it's going to be worth a shot, maybe around that plus 200 mark, which I doubt we get, especially considering that Gunner is in that minus 400 range, minus 300 range in terms of his money line. But I think that Gunner should win this fight. You know, I was talking about that that line between the guys that Gunner has been able to defeat and the guys that he hasn't been able to defeat. And I think that Barbarina is closer to the guys that he has been able to defeat. Barbarina is a veteran. He's a tough cookie to crack. But I think if you're technically better than him and you can impl- implement that game against him, which I believe Gunner will be able to do here, I think you'll be able to get your hand raised. I have no interest at this heavy chalk for Gunner, but I think he wins this fight. And I think he does it via submission. Oh boy, we got a banger in the co-main event here in the lightweight division where we got Justin Gaethje coming in with a 23-4 record going up against hot prospect 12-1 Rafael Fiziev. Starting off on the Justin Gaethje side, he's coming off a title loss to Charles Oliveira where he ended up getting club and subbed in that fight after having a decent start of his own. We know what Justin Gaethje brings to the table with his pressure style, leg kicks and boxing heavy approach. But it seems at 34 years old that he's going to start slowing down, especially when he's fighting technically better fighters than him. Okay, he's only lost to Charles Oliveira and Khabib Nurmagomedov over his last five fights, so we can cut him some slack. But I believe that his durability issues are starting to catch up with him, especially with the amount of damage that he's taken throughout his career. That's why he is the human highlight reel, because he goes out there and puts on exciting performance after exciting performance, even if it means he doesn't end up getting his hand raised. And I think that's where his shortcomings are, where the technically better strikers and technically better fighters are the ones that are going to be able to come out on top against him. Rafael Fiziev continues to prove doubters wrong going in there and defeating high-level opponent after high-level opponent. From Hanato Moicano to Bobby Green to even Rafael Dos Anjos last time around, Rafael Fiziev is putting together a very solid resume en route to a potential title shot, especially if he ends up getting his hand raised this weekend. He's a very mean Muay Thai striker who implements combination striking and nasty kicks to batter his opponents and either knock them out or win via decision. A lot of people were giving him flack after his decision victory over Bobby Green as Bobby Green really turned up the volume in the third round of that matchup and people expected Vizieff to show off horrible cardio in his next couple fights especially the five-rounder that he had against Rafael Dos Anjos. And even Dos Anjos, or even though Dos Anjos was winning the latter rounds of that matchup, it was Fiziev who was able to land this, uh, the last big blow to put Dos Anjos down and end up getting Fiziev that fifth-round TKO win. 
we got to start giving this man his respect, especially with the technical striking approach that he brings and the defensive grappling that we've been seeing from him, which is, allows him to keep fights in his realm, in that striking realm where he's able to let go on his vicious striking combinations that usually finishes opponents or frustrates them, breaks them, and allows Fiziev to still get his hand raised. Now, I fully understand people that are going to be taking the underdog shot here on Justin Gaethje. However, I think that we've seen time and time again that when you have a technical advantage over him, especially in the striking realm, you should be able to take advantage of that, especially with how wild and reckless he is at times, right? He just puts his head down and he throws big hooks. Uh, he has nasty leg kicks as well. But we've seen Fiziev deal with guys with solid striking approaches and still come out on top. I think the technical advantages that Fiziev has in this matchup is going to open up a tremendous amount of knockout opportunities for him that I think he'll eventually be able to capitalize on in this fight. I remember going into the fight against Mark Diakasey, and I get it, Diakasey and Gaethje are on completely different levels in terms of skill, but what Diakasey was so successful with before going into that matchup with Fiziev was the calf kicks that he com continuously implemented against his opponents. Fiziev shut that shit down almost immediately, got off on his strikes, and was able to take home that, that victory that night. That's what he'll probably do here against Gaethje. Like, Gaethje might look to chop the legs here, but I know Fiziev, as seasoned of a striker as he is, will have the perfect counters for that, will have the perfect defenses for that, and counter effectively, and eventually find that knockout victory here. So, again... I don't mind the experience advantage and level of competition advantage that people believe Gaethje has going into this matchup, but let's face it, he's 34 years old, he's starting to lose a step, and he's only lost to Oliver Nurmagomedov, so let's give him the benefit of the doubt here, but Fiziev is the new kid on the block. Fiziev is the guy that is just waiting for his opportunity to fight these steps up in competition to prove that he deserves to be in the top five of this lightweight division, and I think that's what he's going to be able to do, and I think he does it emphatically here by getting a knockout over Justin Gaethje. Time for the main event where we have the welterweight title on the line and the trilogy on our hands between champion Leon Edwards, who comes in with a 20 and 3 record, going up against former welterweight kingpin 20 and 2 Kamaru Usman. Starting off on the Leon Edwards side here, he's put together a very solid resume on his march to the welterweight title shot. His last loss was actually to Kamaru Usman, and he had yet to lose a fight to that point. He had that weird uh, no contest fight against Bilal Mohammed sprinkled in there, but he managed to bounce back with a big victory over Nate Diaz, and then eventually that earned him his title shot, where he was able to snag that welterweight title from Kamar Usman in the fifth round of their fight. Leon Edwards is a tremendous striker who throws in combinations and sets up traps very well, just as he did against Kamar Usman, and he was able to capitalize with a beautiful head kick to earn the title victory. But we saw the def defensive grappling shortcomings that he showcased. And offensively speaking, he's a very solid grappler. Like, not a lot of people expected him to be much of a grappler because they only remember him for his striking. But if you remember the Gunnar Nelson fight, he was the one that looked to take that fight to the ground as soon as the fight started. And I think that caught Gunnar Nelson off guard, which allowed Leon Edwards to pull away with the rest of that fight using his striking. But uh, even in the Dos Anjos fight, had some good success with the grappling in that matchup. But I think that victory had more so to do with the, the size and strength advantage that Leon Edwards was enjoying. Uh, also, Dos Anjos being closer to the latter half of his career than closer to his prime. But Leon Edwards deserves the respect. He went out there, he got his hand raised last time around, and he showcased that he's always going to be in the fight and you should never count him out. 
However, he's going up against a very motivated and hungry Kamaru Usman, who I know is just chomping at the bit to get back in the cage and reclaim the title that was once his. I've long said that I believe that Kamaru Usman was the best fighter on the planet, and unfortunately, that title was sniped from him once he was knocked out by Leon Edwards. I still think that he has the capabilities to be a very high-level fighter, and even though he's at 35 years old at this point in time, I think he can still go out there and get some high-quality wins. What led me to believe that he was the best fighter on the planet was the way that his striking was catching up to his grappling, but mainly his grappling and his cardio in terms of being able to implement a grapple-heavy approach for 25 minutes. And he had a one minor slip-up against Leon Edwards that cost him the title, and I'm sure he's been working whatever it takes to make sure that doesn't happen again. But wins over Gilbert Burns and Kobe Covington and even his uh, title-winning victory against Tyron Woodley shows you how high-level Kamaru Usman is in terms of implementing that style. We saw it this past weekend with Marab Davalashvili, and I think Davalashvili was even more impressive with how he was able to get that win over Piotr Jan, but just that relentless grappling pace that, you know, Usman uh, usually enjoys more control time than what Marab has been able to do, but Marab is just an endless machine that can continuously go for takedown opportunity after takedown uh, opportunity, whereas Kamaru, he is able to catch his breath a little bit when he gets opponents to the ground, even while doing damage from that top position. He's just so good, and I believe that he can still give us a championship-level performance, especially if he looks to try to get his title back this weekend. I really think this fight, the, the first, or I guess their second fight, came down to the fact that Usman just got clipped, right? Don't get me wrong. Edwards had a solid first round. He had grappling success that no fighter was able to have against Usman in the past. But Usman turned it on in that second round, was able to get the takedowns, get the spots that he needed to win those those middle three rounds, and then had a minor slip up in that fifth round, which Leon Edwards was able to capitalize on. All credit to Leon. He set it up perfectly. He never gave up on himself and he was able to get the win. But I fully expect a very hungry and motivated Usman this weekend to go out there and reclaim the title that is once his. And maybe even reclaim, well, I think it's going to be hard for him to get that number one pound for pound status back, especially when you have guys like Volkanovsky and Mahachev still at the top of the food chain. But... I think that Usman is still very capable of high-level performances. Yes, he's 35, but I still think that this is a great stylistic matchup for him to go out there, lean a little bit more on the wrestling. You know what I mean? Maybe he was a little bit too comfortable in the striking realm given the successes he's had in prior fights with his striking. But knowing his bread and butter, knowing that he has the cardio to still go out there and take these guys down and grind on them, whether it's up against the cage or on the ground, I think Edwards is going to struggle to get out of those positions again. And I don't think we see Usman make that mistake once again. Usman was a huge favorite in their first fight. Now he's down to around that minus 230 range, at least at the time of me recording this podcast. And I think that's going to be look like a gift of a line once this fight is all said and done. Before the fight, everybody's going to have their question marks about how Kamaru comes back from such a devastating knockout loss. Six months later, I believe it is. If I'm, I believe it's been six months or so. People are going to say it's too quick. He's going to be broken. He's not going to be the same guy. I believe a level, a fighter with his level of experience, with his level of skill, should be able to come back and get back to what he does best, and that's winning. And I think we see him get that done once again this weekend. I don't know if he'll be as emphatic as he's been able to win prior fights, but I think he'll he'll be fine with taking home that boring decision victory like he's been able to do against Jorge Masvidal and as he has done against guys in the past. 
He just wants that win back. He wants that dub back. He is one of those guys that strikes me as wanting to just, just completely um, uh, get that win back and and rub it in everybody's faces that was talking down on him after he lost that fight, even if it comes back from a boring way, uh, the way that I expect him to do it here. So Kamaru Usman and new, I think he wins this fight by decision. And that's a wrap on the breakdowns. Hope you guys enjoyed the show as always. Make sure you guys smash that like and subscribe below if you haven't already. Get used to these Monday afternoon drops. Well, Monday noon Eastern time drops because that's when I'm going to be competing to because I know a lot of you guys appreciate this early content throughout the week. Also, if you guys want breakdowns on PFL Challenger Series Week 8 as well as Cage Warriors 150, those are starting to drop on the Patreon. Link in the description below. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. Let's keep these numbers rolling up as they have been. I love all you guys. Appreciate every single one of you guys. I'll see you guys throughout the week. Again, Lockheed Trinity coming back on Thursday. Three best prop bets on Friday. Appreciate you guys as always. Peace. Last thing.